our mission is basically to develop products, materials, uh, solutions to create a textile waste-free society. There's been a talk on circularity for many years, but there's not been a lot of actions. So we're really looking for some concrete experience. You're listening to Green Business with Impact. Your host is Jasper Steinhausen. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. We're ending this season of the podcast with a very experienced circular business entrepreneur called Vicky Maya Ingstorm. She's the director and co-founder of Really. I met Vicky for the first time in 2014 when she and her business partner were working on converting used textiles into hardboard materials aimed at the interior design sector. They were amongst the pioneers in the circular use of textiles that we today see in many shapes and forms. I was at the advisory committee for the Danish government as part of their green transition fund and really was one of the companies that we granted some funding. So I went visiting them because I got curious on what I heard and read in their application. But a lot has happened since then, including them being bought by the company Quadrat. Uh, so there's a lot of insight that she has to share with us today. Vicky is also Associated Professor in Sustainable Design and Business Modeling from the American University of Paris. So here you get access to a highly skilled and knowledgeable entrepreneur who also has a foot in the academic world. Hopefully you will enjoy the conversation as much as I do. Vicky, when I think back to when I met you the first time, it was in a very small boutique-ish shop and you and your business partner back then were, at least to my experience, doing some of the pioneering work on transforming textiles into materials that could be used for furniture and, and other ways. Where are you today? And you know, what are the major steps since that really sort of early startup phase and to what type of company you are today? Yeah, I can, Jasper. And thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, yeah, so when we met like 10 years ago, uh, we were on the verge of starting up. So we were basically just doing a lot of lab testing uh, together with the Danish Technological Institute. Yeah, and today we are selling uh, globally uh, textile tabletops uh, for big industries, which is the furniture industries, obviously, and very big projects. So, of course, it's been quite a journey. I think if I'm going to point up a couple of uh, steps that really transformed us into the next uh, chapter, uh, first of all, of course, it was the venture with Quadrat, who was investing in us uh, to to enable us to do the, the thorough work that always is the bottom line of every innovation that you have to do. And then secondly, uh, to achieve a good and solid local uh, production setup where we were to transform our products from a lab scale into a real production setup, which is key to success at the end of the day. And then uh, thirdly, to actually establish our own production setup, which is owned by Quadrat today in the northern part of Denmark, where we then were able to you could say slimline all the different um, elements of really ramping up a bigger production. So this has been quite a steep learning curve. And obviously, when I look at it, it it's like 
you feel that you've been running a lot, uh, luckily enough, in the right direction. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, but also that you are maybe not that reflected uh, upon your achievements. So meeting up with you today also made me reflect on the, you could say, the the, the climbing up the mountain of success uh, of succession in this case uh, in our company and and actually just giving myself a second to look back and look down and realizing that we are in a very good spot at the moment uh, seeing a lot of interest even though we are also looking at a slight recession and uh, slowing down of uh, the industries we can still see that we are now a choice not just an option for a lot of our partners and that just that's just really nice to to know that we are there now and really well done congratulations on that journey i mean you are it's the entrepreneurial journey but in full success because i guess you could say the first couple of years you probably weren't even profitable and what kind of uh, results business results are you generating today i mean profitable is very difficult when you are doing production uh, so it's something that comes with time but I think you set up some ambitious goals. You have your strategy, basically, and then you keep on investing. So from a certain point of view, we are profitable. From another point of view, you would say we're still spending a lot of money because we are also we also need to invest to ramp up production. I think this is one of my key learnings. I'm a little bit curious because... Most companies that are really sort of engaging in the circular economy as a business driver, they have some sort of mission or vision or bigger purpose thereon. What's your bigger game? Well, a waste-free society, I guess. I was. Uh, we actually put it right uh, quite uh, strict when we started out. Uh, both my at that time partner and I were. Uh, had a background in fashion. So we were very much looking at uh, the textile waste coming from fashion and from other uh, household industries. So when we started out, it was a lot about how can we create a concept, a product, a material that can be scaled so we are actually really doing something about the initial challenge, which is a way too much textile waste in our global production system and our consumer system also. So our mission is basically to develop products, materials, uh, solutions to, at the end of the day, create a textile waste-free society. It's interesting because, I mean, that is a humongous task, right? (laughs) As you say. And and that's what I like about companies like like you and the you know, being ready to step up and just take up that baton of saying, well, here is a serious issue, right? That we need to do something about, that we really need to do something about. Is that the reason for your name, by the way? Really, you use that, that this is a problem that we really need to do? I was just out of curiosity. Does that come come from there or is that a completely different original story to the name? Uh, the, the story to the name is at the time where we were starting up, we were sitting uh, trying to identify a name and everybody at the time was, was something about we something. You know, it was, if it wasn't a lab, then it was something about re-textile or reunion. Or yeah, I remember that. that. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, so that was kind of the narrative uh, when you were, were starting up. And we were just thinking, okay, 
we don't want to be some kind of re-textile company. Uh, and then somebody said, but, you know, we are something about reality. We are real. What about calling ourselves really? Mm. And then we thought, okay, that's a nice name. Everybody, you know, it's actually a word you use a lot. And yeah. So, And then it's more like, it's not really as a question mark. Uh, it's more like really with an exclamation. So it's like, okay, this is it. And does it put you in a different state or in a different position compared to some of those companies that more come from that waste solution perspective, if it makes sense what I'm trying to say here? Yeah, and, and I think it does because one of the key selling points that we are always using is that the reason why we do what we do is because we very early on identified this is a vast problem. The scale of this challenge is just so big. So if we are going to succeed in our mission, we need to look at a production system, a product that can really be scaled up. You know, So it's not going to be a totem bag. It's not going to be an apron. It's going to be something that you can put into an industrial system. There can't be too many handheld processes in this because then we're just dying from complexity. So we need to find a way where we have a scale the scale problem, the scale process, but also a scaled product. And that's actually why we do textile tabletops today, because the third biggest product on the European market is uh, tables. So we also needed to identify, you know, all the way, all the way through our value chain, we are looking at how can we get the most into our products, the most input, but also how can we ensure that there's actually a market that are ready for a lot of output? Some of the things that I like about you guys is that you, from the get-go, has been thinking scale, industrial, huge problem, you know, something where we are talking a lot of volume, because otherwise you wouldn't solve the problem, right? So the basic problem, the reason for starting, we've got to do something about this textile surplus. So how do we do that? Well, we don't do that by making stuff where we end up being able to take away one ton at a year. No, we do that by taking up huge amounts. Otherwise, it doesn't really work, right? No, and I think also it actually, in a way, defined our existence. It defined the processes that we were looking at. So in our case, we look at mechanical processing. So it's all about you know, tearing the textile apart and building up a new product in uh, processing systems or manufacturing systems. And that you could also have chosen another way, for example, you could have chosen a chemical process. And, you know, that's there's not that many processes, but you could have made different choices. But none of these processes are at scale. So the only at scale process that we could actually identify was this uh, a mechanical process and so it has been kind of a, a definition for whatever we do can it be scaled is it scaled uh, are there knowledge out there because obviously in a company like us where the two inventors of this were not coming from a, a production point of view were not coming from a material point of view uh, we needed to lean heavily on some of the processes that were already out there 
because otherwise we were going to both invent a product and also a lot of uh, manufacturing processes. And then we would just need a 60. No, it's be too slow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really good match for you being acquired by, by Quarad. When was that, by the way? 2015. 15. Yeah. yeah so you only been around. Really early. Yeah. I would say that you only been around uh, as an independent startup for a couple of years before, exactly. before they realized the potential. Yeah, but true. I mean, Quadrat uh, ventured into our company or when we were not even, I would say, <laughs> the, the, the whole idea were still on a very lab-based level. Why did you think they were ready to, to do that? Were they just really sort of foresighted into this is the wave of the future or had you already built a strong brand or was personal connections? or you know, Why do you think that they were able to and ready to invest in you at this, as you say, fairly early stage, to be honest. I think it's basically about the senior management of Quadrat are very foresighted. I think very curious in understanding what's coming up. I think Quadrat at the time were were facing that there were this merging uh, seek in within the architect community, which is a very big segment for Quadrat about, you know, sustainability, circularity were some of the key words at the time. So I think basically the senior management foresaw that we need to have a concept. And by venturing into us, the risk were quite low. Uh, there was a lot of learning to be achieved in the company as well. And um, six years after uh, Quadrat actually established and uh, released a very powerful sustainability strategy, and I'm not going to say that I did the strategy or we did the strategy, but I would lean on to that we were inspiring that motion in Quadrat. I guess you sort of set yourself up for being bought up at some point by a bigger industrial player rather than if it was a more like a niche-based uh, circular approach. Yeah, for sure. And we were also very aware from the, ver- from the start that you know, uh, when you start something up, uh, you need a lot of processing and processing to be established. You're not going to achieve material. So you also need somebody uh, to be your partner that has access to a quite high level uh, market, a market that potentially would be more ready to pay slightly more for a product than, you know, like a mass market. So we were also looking at Quadrat from the perspective that they had ex- they had a very strong brand. They have a very strong, we have a very strong brand. But also, you know, they were globally out there. They had uh, all the best architect studios as clients. They were onto all great projects. They were deep in with all industrial uh, clients, which is the furniture industry. So we're thinking, okay, here... Ideal partner, yeah, in other words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were. Yeah. I mean, Quadrat was, at that time, it was a, a merely a sales operation. You know, production were not very close to them at the time. This is a, also a process where they have tied knots with production a lot more. Within these years, we have been collaborating and be part of the Quadrat family. And I think you should do that when you talk about venture venture capital. You, you need more than money. You also need access to a market. It's, and money is not going to make it for you, necessarily. No. You're not anywhere near the first example I have. And, you know, people that start a circular business 
and then at some point in that journey get bought by bigger well-established players because they recognize the need getting onto the business model of tomorrow, I guess you could say. Uh, but at least that approach that, that everybody can see that we need to move in that direction and, and thereby basically positioning themselves to be bought. Do you see a lot of examples of this uh, around you? Have, you? have you noticed that? I think I see a lot of examples uh, in global businesses that uh, startups, you know, with a certain idea, especially within the fashion world. You see big players like H&M actually doing a cradle for an adventure into smaller companies that are, you know, solving some of the issues that they are foreseeing and already facing. So yes, I, I, I see that a lot. And I think it's very difficult uh, from an innovation perspective to innovate from within a company. You're very much stuck in the system that you already have. And innovation also takes that you actually have a, a totally different take on how to process, uh, you know, the way that lies ahead of you, because you need to be a lot more agile when you are an innovator. And you need to be a little bit um, more leaning on to anarchism. <laughs> There's a lot of um, contradictions in being an innovator, I think. You need to be very structured. And on the other hand, you also need to be very anarchistic. But I think it's great to see that, and, and, and therefore I'm happy to see that you see the same picture that by now the maturity, I guess you could say, of circularity and, and sustainability in the broader business community has reached a point where executives are starting to say, okay, we need to go out and buy these innovators, right? The innovators are the circular innovators. Those are a, a new frontier of innovation that sort of comes up alongside digitization and design of all the other kinds of solutions that are out there. But but people are actually also now having and you know keeping an eye out for how do I fast track by buying up smaller companies that have really figured out how to integrate circularity into the business, the core of the business. I think it's super needed, yes, but I think it's needed uh, when you look at it a little bit from the outside. There's been a talk on circularity for many years, but there's not been a lot of actions in there. So we're really looking for some concrete experience and I think it's a little bit again like climbing the you know the mountain you you would not climb the mountain alone being inexperienced even though you were Elon Musk because you would know that this is like unknown uh, territory and you would not be prepared for whatever might occur so buying a smaller company and I, I, I would say it's not easy to be bought by a bigger company because you know there's always the fear that the current culture is just gonna absorb all the energy of the, the younger company. But again, there's a lot of learnings that is based on actions and not just on theory and you know uh, forecasting scenarios and so forth. And I think what you do on a small scale is basically also what you need to ramp up on a bigger scale. And I think this is where sometimes it's it's difficult for bigger companies to understand that, you know, the agility, the transparency, the partnerships you need to have when you do circularity, the compliance. You're, you're looking at different parameters when you do compliance than you do when you're just looking at your compliance program in a big company. And I think that's... Uh, that's something that is uh, super difficult to achieve if you have no idea what you're looking for, basically. Because everybody can say the right words, but nobody can do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
building on that, I was just curious to hear your reflections on if you look back now and think, what are the most important things that you learned? I think the, I mean, first of all, what we already uh, touched upon, be very aware what your agenda is. Why are you here? You know, if, if that's clear, it's, it's, it's also going to escalate into everything you do. If that's a little bit unclear, then you are also going to be derailed at the end of the day. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when you talk about circularity, it's a different mindset. So you need to think circularity into all the different aspects of your company. So it's, it's not only about um, a circular material. It's also about engaging your suppliers in what does it mean for us to be circular. Uh, it's also engaging your the process to understand how can you actually process something that is circular. What is your next product? So when you get your product back in the circular journey, how do you actually design your product for circularity? Because I think this is something that we have not seen that much, that you, you have a circular product, but it's actually not really designed for circularity. And then again, also to engage your customers in what does it mean? What is our responsibility as a circular company? What is your responsibility? Because the thing about responsibility in a circular journey is that everybody has a responsibility. And that's a slightly different narrative than when you are a company like, for example, Quadrat, that has this that has these high-end textiles and basically take all the responsibility for the textiles, also for, for, for their customers. But because they are putting out, uh, you know, like uh, the the qualities like this, the longevity is like this. So the, 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 in a way, the customer is just going to make that slightly maybe more expensive buy, but then they will get all the benefits from that. In circularity, that's not what happens. You will get all the benefits for sure, but you also have a responsibility because now the product is yours. And we cannot navigate in our customers' world. We don't know who our customers' customers are. So it's like a passport that just kind of swaps hands all over, but you need to keep track of where is the passport now and how is it going to take the journey back. It's really, really interesting. And I think this is something highly important for business leaders, you know, also listening to this, but perhaps not fully embracing the this circular approach, right? They might be listening because they're curious and, you know, that there are some of the learnings that could be, you know, hard to make on your own, that, you you know, it, it takes time. I, sometimes I also hear people uh, with this discussion about, you know, when is the right time for us to engage? And I... I I always think of this old, I think it's a Chinese proverb, right? When is the best time to plant a tree? Well, that's you know, 100 years ago. And the second best time, well, that's today, right? Because it takes time to grow this, right? You don't get that mindset internally really for, for everybody that needs to be on board. And you don't get those learnings and those discussions and that I guess you also need to develop your client base, right? Because you say you come from, you don't have a responsibility other than paying me the money that that we agreed and that's it. Also, until all of a sudden, well, you are actually part of this. So you need to do it differently. You need to, as you say, take the, the passport and, and bring it on or you need to tell your clients to, to do something differently or return it at the end or whatever it is the setup is. But 
So there are lots of exactly also cultural things that that comes with this circular business approach that you don't have in the linear, and that takes time. No, because I don't think circular business models are super developed. I mean, mentally we we do understand what it includes, but it's also uh, compromising our you could say our Lionel business model, and and that becomes very difficult because. First of all, working with circularity actually take a vertical off your company. So it's not like you cannot, from a product uh, perspective, just decide that now we're going to be circular. You also need to have your procurement and supply line. You need your customers, but you also need your financing department to be aligned there and to, to kind of help bounce some ideas of how do we then sell our product. And I think that's that's a big thing for many companies that the finance department is maybe not really part of that journey to be honest uh, and then you don't really have the the best possible uh, business model so how do you make sure that you get i guess you could say the whole c-suite involved right because one's finance one is supply one is sales marketing so whoever has that top level of responsibility depending on the organizational setup but how do you ensure that you get everybody on board? I think, first of all, you need to start the dialogue. I mean, you're not going to get everybody on board from the first day. And then you need to do some action. So you actually need to get some products out there to get a customer feedback because everybody are looking, uh, and especially in our organization where we have great measures on our customers and our customers' feed feedback. So it it means the world for us to be best in class towards our customers. Um, so you can't do everything at once. So it's like a, a process where you need to, you know, establish your 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 initial circular, very simple business model. Obviously, you need to establish your product. You need to establish the dialogue with the customers. And then you realize that, you know, there's so much more we could do, but everybody's beginning to see the, the framework of the business. Okay, there's a business here. There's an interest. There's it can be yeah. directly on your branding. It doesn't need to be on your turnover. It just it's just a matter of the value points you have. Uh, where does this resonate? And if there is, you know, when it begins to resonate, then suddenly you also have a lot more attention from a bigger part of the organization. All right, this might be an opportunity for the future. But you need to establish that because otherwise, it's also, to be honest, it's just a mental game you're playing. You know, nothing comes from nothing and circularity does not come from not being circular and think about how to be circular. It's really about walking the talk and you don't start with jeopardizing your whole business and bringing it on to a, a circular concept and then say, okay, it didn't work. So it's like this incremental innovation of your business model that needs to take place. And what's interesting is really, right, you say it's an incremental innovation of your business model, but it builds on a radical innovation of your thought process. So that sort of shift between what is needed is that at the one hand, you've got in your head simultaneously, you got to be that disruptive, radical innovation and a foot on the on the brake saying, oh no, 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 we gotta do it. we gotta do it in small steps. It's right, it's incremental, it's incremental, but all the time having the bigger picture and also developing uh, how how could this at all work? 
And that's, I guess, part of the challenge of, of really transforming a company is that you've got to have those different levels at the same time that are kind of contradictory. Exactly. And I think this is the, this is maybe also sometimes the big challenge for the innovators that you, you need to have the energy to do the innovation. You need to stand up and stand strong, but you also need to be very smart, not only in regards of your own innovation, but also in, in regards of how to anchor change in a company. Because this is a major uh, change process. I think it's really about how do you mandate your idea in the company? Who is the people to go to to start the dialogue about where do we want to be in five years, 10 years? What does it take? And it's not going to be super concrete from the start, but it's just going to be to mentally move people to be more or maybe less reluctant to take the, the next step. Are you leveraging the full potential and sustainability as a business driver? Are you making the impact on the world that you could? Most companies are not. Take the profitable green business scorecard to learn if you also are leaving money on the table. If your approach sets you up to become a thriving business that makes the world a better place. It's free, it's take two to three minutes and you will get tailored suggestions for how to move forward based on your score. Go to greenprofit.scoreapp.com. By the way, do you remember a a certain point or situation or story or something where you had this feeling that this was really a big step forward? Now this happened in, in the company or this person stepped up or this person started talking about or yeah. Do you remember a a, a specific point that was kind of like where you, you know, went home that night and thought, this was a good day. Something happened here. Yeah, I think uh, we had a lot of session with our salespeople. You know, salespeople are very, they are out of the box in many ways, but they are also, you know, they want to stay in their comfort zone. They're not going to do anything that might also uh, feed back badly on them. So being insecure as a salesperson, that's just not the way you want to be. So we uh, decided to have some learning sessions like simply just pull a selection of people already there. We had had uh, we had an idea of people that were a little slightly more interested in what we did. So we had these sessions with these people. Uh, we called them the ambassadors, you know, and uh, and and we had uh, this learning session. And when we finalized the learning session, so this was one hour or something. Everybody was so committed to what we did. There was so much energy. So it was like this feeling, okay, we need to be very much closer to everybody in our organizations to ensure that they really actually know what we are doing. And um, I think that was a, it, it's something that's quite obvious, but when you are working with something on a daily basis, you actually feel that everybody knows exactly as much as you do. Yeah. And they yeah, don't. And they don't. No. <laughs> I think it's a really, really crucial point you make here that you got to get close in on all the, basically on, on all different groups in your in the company, but but starting with the most crucial ones, right? So as you say, sales and marketing, uh, finance, and supply chain there, you you simply have to do the, and that's, I guess you could say as the, the innovator or the whoever takes the charts on that circular component in your business, it, it basically falls back on you 
I sometimes say to people, it's kind of like page two in any communication book, right? It's never the receiver that don't get it. It's you that don't deliver it the right way. So we have to take it on ourselves. And the same goes for customers and partners and supply chain and everything. It, it's never them. It's our responsibility to make sure that they're on board, that it makes sense, that it's meaningful, that they can see the business upside and opportunity in this, as well as the impact side, of course. But we have to do that. And I think that's a really, really good example you came with there with you know doing the role play with the sales team until you feel like now they're powered up, now they're energized, now they get it. Okay, check. Then you probably need to check in with them. But still, you know, that's a starting point. That's a turning point. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's like learning processes. You need to create this. I also often call it this internal stakeholder management that you use quite a lot of time on because you, you need to have the right stakeholders. And it's not necessarily always the CEO or the CFO, but, you know, some people has a stronger voice in a, in, in a company. And I think this is, you need to find those that can actually transform what you're doing into something that is valid for a lot more people. So it's like a little bit rings in the water. Yeah. And yeah, and identify, as you say, those key people, those that are, as a, that has a significant voice that for somehow, some reason, are the informal or formal, but very often informal leaders. <laughs> those are the ones to, to tick the box for. And then also not to forget uh, to tick the box for the ones that would potentially be the weak link. Yeah, the naysayers. Because you also yeah. need to, yeah, the naysayers, because they can spread a lot of bad vibes around what you do if they don't like you, for example, or if they don't, you know, there's also a power play in that. Do you have any advice on how you get those people? How do you get the naysayers on board? Do you have some sort of trick up your sleeves? Yeah, I have. Uh, <laughs> I think it works for me, but uh, I, I don't know if it's more like it can be also a general tool. Um, I've done a lot of workshop when I was a consultant. So it means you also always have these cross-armed, you know, like people that you can't tell them anything. They, you know, they, they just know everything and they probably do. I have the feeling that naysayers come from not really getting an acknowledgement from, from what you are actually contributing. Uh, so often I pay not too much attention, but maybe a slight amount of attention in a way formulating to them that they are super important because they are. And uh, if you have that, you know, like uh, for me, it's super important that you understand what we're doing because you are such an important voice here. And they are, but you don't need to say because you are such a naysayer, you know, it's just say, but if you are... <laughs> So would you be, you know, interested to just have a cup of coffee and we could talk about, you know, what is your objections? What is my, you know? And uh, I feel that that also kind of solves the problem. Yeah, makes good sense. Makes good sense. But of course you need to be, you, you need to be, be honest about your, your motivation should be not, you know, now I'm just going to hopefully change a, a pain into something that is maybe neutral, but it should also be, a real interest in why is this person an essay? Yeah, what, understanding, yeah. yeah. So we're coming towards the end a bit, but I, uh, you know, results is always what counts in business. So I'd just like to sort of hone in a little bit about what are some of the specific results that you 
managed to create in in Karat really over the years? Yeah, I, th- I think first of all, I think we opened a lot of. I mean, the Karat really concept really were very well received. So uh, every time we have been presenting, showcasing whatever at fairs or at uh, at different platforms, a lot of people want to understand and hear and feel and touch and you know whatever what we're doing. So of course, Kodak had a lot of clients already, but we really opened up a client base uh, in fashion, for example, that Kodak did not have beforehand. Because we are, you know, we are solving big problems for for fashion uh, companies. It's not that we work in particular much with fashion. Actually, we do that. We work with some very big companies, and that's great. But actually, it's more like it opens the fashion uh, organizations and the the buyers' eyes for uh, for Kvadrat actually has offers within a lot of uh, uh, parts of the interior. So it's not only curtains or textiles. No, no, it's also rocks and it's acoustics and so on. So I think we we became the symbol for a much more diverse product portfolio at Quadrat that has been built up the last 10 years. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, I mean, Quadrat has always been sustainable in the sense of having uh, quality and uh, product that last, and that, of course, that's the one of the key issues in a sustainability. Buy something a little le- more expensive, and then keep it for the rest of us. Let it stay alive for as long as possible. So, in that regard, and they have always been compliant. They've signed a global compact and so on very early on, but we brought in sustainability and circularity on a totally different level because we're also we're also using quadrat textiles in our products so people simply saw quadrat as a lot more sustainable in a new paradigm then i think it's also about foreseeing uh, a, the the big potential of really is also that uh, and we're going to harvest that potential obviously is that there are this enormous sale of tabletops, for example, or flat, hard board materials. And uh, woods are not going to be sustainable in, in the long run due to biodiversity. So we already see that there's a lot of discussion on industrial wood industry. We see that uh, other products uh, has, uh, for example, has a more formaldehyde in them. So there's also coming regulation into the, the market, which is, there needs to be a, a, a reuse content in products that you are in materials that you're using. And I think Quadrat saw that very early on. And so, okay, here is actually a niche where there's nearly no competitors. And this is the niche that we're going for. And we can see now Eco Design Directive from EU is now stepping in. And I think within the next two or three years, we have directors on furnitures and on textiles, which actually also creates a totally different marketplace on the inner market. So I think there's a lot of this foreseenness. So the potential of what we do in Quadrat really is also something that is driving optimism in Quadrat. Yeah. You're staying ahead of the curve and you're 
creating energy and optimism on the business view and different, I guess, also innovation. And you've been part of opening up sales and realizing you know, some of the, the potentially in already existing products, but to new markets. So those are some of the tangible business results since you became part of the Quadrata exactly. family. Yeah. I have a question I, I always like to end with, and it's the role of business in general in this transition to a more sustainable or truly sustainable future that needs to happen pretty rapidly and at a massive scale. I think businesses are key to uh, a sustainable transition. I think also a lot of businesses know that they are key to this, that you know, regulation and politics, they are a lot more reactive, uh, but you need to you, you need to understand that you your market position is actually being jeopardized by the current situation of the the world. But I also think that it takes a lot more action. And I think uh, businesses should at all be a little bit more um, just testing out, just really using uh, the position in the market to test out new concepts. And then to very, very rapidly embed them in the core business if they are successful. I feel that there's a little bit like everybody is looking for perfection. So you're just testing something out when it's perfect and you know it's going to be perfect and then it's not happening. There's a lot of things that need to be aligned in these in the future to come. You know, we need uh, innovation to, to take place within materials, within energy within a lot of different things but a lot of this innovation is also highly uh, de de depending on uh, a market that is moving so the innovation cannot come before somebody is moving the market and that's a mutually interaction i guess you could say between what's going on in the business and what's going on in the market and in the world around us um, yeah and i think it's something that you need it's more like instead of having these, you know, like uh, releases of this is the whole new new version, the best version, maybe to, um, again, incrementally check out with your customer how far are they actually willing to go, you know. In, in fashion where I originated from, we have this capsule collection system where you're often, you know, testing in collaboration with a known fashion designer, you're testing something. And it's, of course, a point of sale and you get something unique but it's also something that feeds directly into the biggest system. Okay, so they were going to go this way. They like this style. Okay, we're going to we're going to feed it in and then it very very rapidly becomes part of the core of what you do. And I don't in particularly love fashion at the moment because I think they should maybe think more about quality and slowing down their business model and maybe maybe not so much look at their products but actually look at their business model would be beneficial I would say but I think in in regards of that you could actually test a little bit more yeah so it, it's that part about you know, don't go for don't strive for perfection because it's a process where you also need to push and get pushed feedback and push back from the market so you gotta you know hone the product and finalize it in the marketplace not in your head not in your own quarters, you got to do it in and with the business and uh, with the market. I mean, no more mapping, no more uh, surveys, no more just do it because that's what's needed. Yeah. 
Well, that's in there. I, I really like that uh, because there's been a lot of, of good and really interesting points here. Uh, if, if some people are listening here and want to connect to you somehow, um, how do they do that best? I think it's uh, LinkedIn is a very good platform for me. So I have a link, a personal LinkedIn profile uh, where they can always, always connect to me. But actually also we have a Quadrat Really profile where we are also uh, open for expanding our network and communicating and so on. Yeah. Great. Well, I could definitely say, people, if, if you feel like this has been interesting, do reach out to Vicky because there is a ton of experience here and uh, and I can highly recommend uh, connecting with her and, and being part of, of her network as well. So, Vicky, thank you so much for showing up. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, lots of interesting stuff and I hope that you listeners out there as well have, have found this uh, interesting. If you do, Please uh, subscribe to the to the podcast, uh, and uh, it would be great if you uh, if you just forward to one person that you know that you think this episode might be interesting. Just forward the podcast, and then we can help spread and get this message out. And uh, just for the final part here, uh, it would have been possible to make without my fantastic editor, so uh, Anita Hellstrom from Halcom. Uh, is in charge of all that goes out behind the show. Uh, so, Vicky, uh, again, thank you so much for showing up and thank you all for listening in. You've listened to Green Business with Impact. You can get more insight on how to create circular business on bwimpact.com. If you want to get in touch, you are very welcome to connect with Jasper on LinkedIn. Just type in Jasper Steinhausen. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcast episodes, please contact Jasper, J-S, at bwimpact.com.